If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I want you to meet Ken Lin, founder and CEO of Credit Karma. He started Credit Karma in 2007 to offer free credit scores and bring transparency and simplicity to the credit industry. Today, Credit Karma serves more than 100 million members in the United States, UK, and Canada. It continues to use technology to bridge the gap between consumers and financial services by consistently rolling out free consumer-first tools designed to help members manage their full financial lives. Ken has led the company from a small team of three to more than 1,300 employees. In 2020, Intuit acquired Credit Karma for $8.1 billion. Before Credit Karma, Ken also founded Multilytics Marketing in 2006. He holds a BA in Mathematics and Economics from Boston University. He was selected to join the esteemed Aspen Institute Tenure Crown Fellows in 2018. So now let's welcome my friend, Ken. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. We could not be more excited. And I wanna just quickly start with like the simplest question. Right now, you have over 100 million users, which is wild. So anybody who's listening who's not one of your already 100 million users, can you just describe what Credit Karma is in your own words? Sure. Well, Credit Karma started with helping people understand their credit scores. But really, what we learned through the years is when people were asking for help with their credit scores, what we're really asking for is, what credit products am I qualified for? And then when we peeled the layers of the onion back a little bit more, we realized that people were really asking for help with their financial scores. And over the years, we've evolved from a free credit score service to a product that really helps simplify consumers' financial life at the simplest terms. Can you just tell everybody, where did you guys come up with the idea? What was the spark that said, this is a big problem? And how did you think about those early days as you stood up the business? Yeah, if you remember 2007, I remember uh, there were a few things going on in the space, right? First, I started my career in the credit card space. So I realized how important understanding consumers' financial profile was. Uh, but more than that, later on in my career, I'd spent a number of years just evaluating the landscape and realized that more and more credit scores were becoming a part of the consumer's life. And at the time, there was simply no way for a consumer to get their credit score. I remember just thinking about what's well, really important to businesses, it's really important to consumers. And there's got to be a better way of providing a score to a consumer for free. And that was the journey that we went on with doing the right thing for consumers, helping them navigate their financial life, and at the same time, giving them one of the sort of milestone metrics of you know, their financial health. You know, I, I remember one, one journey was, you know, I first stumbled onto this industry by wanting to know what my credit score was because it's been a long time and I fell into the trap of, you know, looking at one of those negative opt-out products, which is get your score, put in your credit card. If you forget to cancel, they'll charge you $20 until you remember to cancel. You were so obsessed with the customer, truly. And you said, I want to keep this product free for everybody. 
you know, as a certified financial planner, I know so well just how stressful credit is for people. How did you think about obsessing over the customer? For people out there thinking about their own business, just what were the internal principles? What were the things that you did to make sure that Credit Karma stayed, number one, obsessively customer-focused, but number two, free to everybody? When you think about the industry and, and where we grew up back in 2007, you know, there was so many companies that were focused on quote-unquote free credit scores that weren't actually free. So going back to this idea of trust, believability, and building rapport with our members, that was the first thing that everyone thought was there's no way that Credit Karma is for real. There's no way that they're going to do this for free, and there's no way they're, they're not going to sell my information. And I remember we have to overcome that. And I think one of our first principles was let's never do those things. And it's been a grounding principle, a foundational principle that we've had since day one. And, you know, 13 years later, 14 years later, I'm proud to say that we've committed to that principle and stood by that principle. But that was how we built trust because everyone's expectation in the beginning was that we were absolutely going to charge them. We were absolutely going to spam them. And I remember being on you know, a number of forums and I said, well, I, I challenge you, go and create a unique Gmail address and put that in for your credit karma registration, right? Don't give it to anyone else and, and tell me if you get any spam. And I remember also saying, let's never have a credit card processing account so we can you know, never, no one could ever claim we charge their credit card because we don't take credit cards, we'll never charge. So I remember those are some early principles that we had and you know, the, both of those principles are still true today. Let's go back and think about the chapters of Credit Karma, right? And I, I like to use chapters because it's, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three. But what were the chapters and how, if you look and rewind, how would you sort of describe it to somebody as you built out the business? Great framing. So I think chapter one was always an obsession with the product and solving consumer problems. So for us, that was setting up the business, building out the product. And that really revolved around a few interesting stories. You know, one of my favorites is when we started, nobody would actually want to sell us the credit score. So it was a bunch of challenges around just procuring the data. We had raised some funding. We had put together a small team and then we had an interesting business idea. I think one of the hardest parts of that period was just getting the data. And, uh, you know, the model was, again, negative opt-out subscription. And as a result, we said, hey, we want to do this for free. <laughs> and everyone we went to said, yeah, we're not taking new customers. And I remember saying, wait a minute, we have money. You don't want to take new customers? You don't want to take our money? And the short answer was no, go talk to the other bureaus, which I thought was really interesting. So that was very much chapter one, which is building the product, getting the idea off the ground. Very quickly, I would say chapter two was, okay, we've got some users, we've got really wonderful traction, but what's the business model going to be? So we spent a lot of time iterating through, is there an opportunity for us to you know, help consumers save money? Is there an opportunity for us to create more certainty in the space? We stumbled upon uh, the idea that, you know, what consumers were really looking for when they were looking for their credit score was what credit proxy qualified for. So we started building out that platform. So that's, I think, really chapter two is really finding that product market fit. And then over time, I'd say chapter three was moving into other products. So, you know, we went from credit cards, personal loans, to autos, to, to mortgages, really helping consumers find the very best products making sure that they are qualified for those particular products and making the process as easy as possible. Uh, and then I would say chapter four, which is where we really are now is moving to the other side of the balance sheet. So we helped with, first, people help uh, understanding their credit, secondarily, using their credit to find the very best products that they were qualified for. And now we're in a world where, right, now that you've got credit products and understand that space, you wanna make sure that people are saving for their future with high yield savings products that you know, are, are some of the highest in the market. And we recently launched a checking account that 
you know, was built from the ground up with the idea that we shouldn't have any fees. It should bring people into the space and we should be protecting the most disadvantaged and underserved people rather than exploiting them for fees and so on. You run a really mission-based business where you had extreme principles that you guys were committed to. How do you think that helps Credit Karma for all the founders out there listening who maybe have a, an important mission that they're working? How did you think about using that mission for good, building a better product because of it, if you had to teach somebody else? I always tell entrepreneurs that if you're going to go into business, do it because of a passion. Don't do it because of revenue, right? Don't do it for, for, for the money side of it. There are really hard days. And, and candidly, money is a hard motivator. It's not going to get you out of out of bed on those hard days. So that's one area. Now, for us, I remember very early in our journey, you know, the recession hit. So after spending roughly a year building the business, gaining traction, feeling like there was something there, you know, the great recession hit in 2008. And overnight, our partners disappeared, our potential funding disappeared, but we had users. And users were coming to us more and more because they were also caught in the great recession and really were looking for an outlet. And it was in that moment, I committed to myself and the team. And, and what we said was, hey, even if this business fails, because we can't find funding, because there are no customers, or I would say, I guess, no advertisers in the space, that's okay. Let's make sure that we make an impact and impact being let's help one person, 10 people, 100 people, 1000 people understand their finances. And that was a commitment we made. That was the investment we made. And I always think today, we're still seeing the dividends of making that choice and doing right by the consumer. And I tell that to everyone. And I, I talk about that literally on onboarding, which is you know, the idea that we have invested 13 years of hard work into building trust with our members, obsessing about our members. And it takes a moment's bad decision. It takes a moment slip up to ruin that and why it's fundamentally so important for us to do that. But at the end of the day, you got to follow what you're passionate about. You have to follow your mission. You have to think about what you really care about and what you're trying to achieve with the business that you're starting. And for us, it was certainly that North Star of making a difference in people's lives. You know, from a personal level, I remember how hard it was for my parents to make ends meet in their early days. And, you know, I think about all the families and people we might be able to help. And again, it doesn't matter if it's a million or just one person. I think that one person is motivated. You know, for any founder selling your business for, for even $25 million is pretty wild. Can you just walk us through how that came about, your decision-making through that? You know, just give us a little bit of the inside scoop of what that felt like for you and, and also how you guys came to the decision that said, this makes sense. I've always said, and I've been on the record, that an IPO was not necessarily the end goal. And I see that because we always thought about our mission and the IPO or any round of financing is really just a tool in achieving whatever that objective is going to be. So that has always been my mindset for the last you know, 10, 12 years. And I've said that for a very long time. So with that said, we never planned on an IPO per se. We planned on following the mission, making the impact and building the best product that we could. From a timeframe perspective, uh, I guess it was you know, 2019 or so, been building the business, felt really good about you know, all the impact that we we're making and all the potential outcomes. Uh, and we were introduced by, you know, a banker or a friend, a boat, you know, to someone at Intuit. It was just to get to know you. But, uh, you know, what was really interesting was I didn't know much about Intuit at the time in the sense I didn't know about their mission. I didn't know about their team. And, you know, through that conversation, it became very clear that we had a very similar uh, objective when it came to making a difference in people's lives. So, you know, conversations sort of kind of went back and forth for a long time. 
But all to say, at one point, you know, it came to a little bit of a head where they got very serious about you know, making an offer for an acquisition. And really, the mindset for me was very much around impact. Right? I, I have always said from day one that this is never going to be about you know, creating the most revenue, but making the biggest impact. And it was very clear to me that with Intuit that we could do a lot more. You know, we could get there faster. Because if you look at the financial services sector, it's all about scale. All of the big banks uh, really care about scale. And my thinking here was that it was going to take a large customer base, right? A lot of users who wanted change in the sector, who could leverage credit karma to be that conduit of change with the large financial services companies to bring about more transparency, to bring about more simplicity, to bring about more certainty in terms of how to manage their lives. And uh, that was the overriding principle that I loved, which was we could accelerate the mission by 10 years if we partnered into it. And uh, the board felt the same. And you know, it took a little bit of time to, to get through all the various negotiations because it was a very big deal. And you know, there are a lot of uh, areas to navigate through, but we felt really good about it. And you know, here we are on the other side of that through a very challenging year. What advice would you have for founders going through an acquisition out there, just knowing that we probably both learned a lot? I think alignment, 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 right? You know, I think that sometimes you can very quickly get swept into the process, you can get swept into the excitement, but what really matters is, you know, what are the guiding principles? Why are you doing this? And making sure that everyone on all sides understands that. Because I think, you know, having tried to be a study of, you know, the rights and wrongs of acquisition, that was the one clear element that came through time and time again was a misalignment with the acquirer and the seller. And luckily for us, we were very clear from the get-go about, you know, one, the mission being very important. Two, we fundamentally felt it was important that we were going to be able to follow through on our ambitions around, you know, helping consumers. That alignment of mission, I think, was, was pivotal. Uh, and then I three, I think, you know, our ability to, to get to credit karma running autonomously, you know, as a company was also a great windfall and also helped create a lot of trust, uh, but also a lot of security and confidence that we would continue to move forward. That's awesome. I couldn't agree more. You have such a unique vision around the American wallet and all of the things that we can do to make it better. If we fast forward 10 years, what are some of your predictions? What are the, some of the things that you see that you think are within like absolute reach that could help make everyone's financial life significantly better? What are those? A vast majority of Americans are overwhelmed by their finances, right? I think you've seen it. We've all experienced it if you're in fintech. And I think we're on the precipice of change here. And what I mean by that is, you know, what computers and data and machine learning are really good at is math. And if you really think about personal finance, it's all about math. And I think for the first time, and I think specifically with Credit Karma, but more broadly as an industry, companies are taking up the challenge from a consumer-centric point of view. So rather than spending all of that technology, all of that AI machine learning and compute power in terms of making more revenue, uh, companies like Credit Karma are spending time to say, hey, how could I change a consumer's trajectory? How can I change a consumer's life? How can I unload in the burden of all that it is around finances that keeps people up at night, that you know, causes stress in relationships? That's a source of anxiety for everyone. So prediction here is that within the next 10 years, a lot of the things around your personal finance that keep you up at night and that cause you stress, those will be alleviated through technology, right? So what does that mean? Really think it means like you, you know, you you work your job, your 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 uh, your payroll is deposited into account that automatically pays off your you know various debt instruments. 
when you do that, your credit's increasing, it'll automatically refinance you to a lower, you know, a lower fee product until you get out of debt. And it'll help you save your, for your future. It'll tell you how much money you have saved to spend so you never overdraft. I mean, these are all the things that I think all of us experience at some point in our lives. And I think technology will make it better, simpler, and uh, hopefully less stressful. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. One of the things that I think is really beautiful about the wallet is it's actually just a simple, it's a big one, but it's a math equation, right? How much money do you have left? What do you need to do with it? And what is the most efficient way for that to happen? Whether it's to your point of just paying down debt versus if you have extra capital for investment, putting it again, based on your risk profile into the most optimal places based on when you may need that capital. It's really just simply risk adjusted automations on what you want to actually be able to do. And one of the things that drives me nuts is that that technology isn't here yet because it would, you know, maybe I'm wrong, Ken, but I don't believe that people want to stare at their bank statements. I actually think most Americans would like simply to know, is my money there? Is it safe? And is it doing what I need it to? And outside of that, every day, some machine could tell them that over and over. They don't necessarily want to pour over staring at the markets unless they're very interested in that. Why can't we get there faster? I want to get there faster. Oh, one, I completely agree with you. I think there's a small group, which is fine. They want you know total control and, and, and good for them. And, and that's absolutely right. But for us, I think a vast majority do want to see it be automated. And I think the challenge is the complexity of the system, all the various data and the connectivity that, or the lack thereof of connectivity in the space. So what I mean by that is, you know, if you think about each individual, you know, I know I at least have five or six different financial services accounts. They're not really connected in any meaningful way. Uh, for me to move dollars around in that system, I'm really going to the Fed system versus a technology platform, an ecosystem. What you actually see in a lot of other spaces, right? In a lot of other spaces, there is a data ecosystem. There is a, you know, um, an ability to move information or dollars around. But in financial services, that's not really true. And I think that's a piece that's missing. So I think that's one clear area. I think the other area is going to be trust. You know, I would use the Google Maps or self-driving, you know, analog, right? Ten years ago. Uh, I remember getting in a car and, you know, certain taxi drivers would say, well, I really know the city like the back of my hand. I don't trust the maps. And I think you're kind of crazy to do that today because the maps know like, hey, there was an accident here. And normally that's a great path, but today it's not. So I think consumers are still going through that journey when it comes to their lives and their financial lives specifically. So I think there is a moment in time where people realize, wow, it is easier for me to do bill pay, which I think is a very you know, basic level of, of autonomy. But over time, the investments, the ability to pay down debt, to refinance, that's something that's going to require trust as well. So it's those two pieces, right? It's consumer trust and the connectivity of the various accounts in the space. I think the technology is already there from an AI and machine. What do you think the role of humans will be around the wallet and advice in the future, if you had to guess? 
Well, I think, you know, that group who really want to manage it, right? I think it'll be fun. It's kind of like driving a manual car, right? You really love the thrill of driving. And I think for some percentage of the population, that's what it's going to be. But I think for a vast majority of other people, right? It's to your point, uh, consumers just really want to know, like, what do I have safe to spend? What can I go and, you know, how much is a good amount to spend on my vacation? You know, what size of house can I buy? And is it a good idea to refinance right now? I mean, if you think about what happens now, something as simple as a mortgage, what do we do? We always talk to a friend who recently you know, went through the purchase uh, or a family member, right? There is no trusted source. There is no area that uh, we feel confidence in. You know, we don't necessarily Google it like we do everything else in our lives when it comes to money. It tends to be very personal uh, and also tends to come with a lack of trust and it's somewhat you know, a taboo in the space. So we have to change all of that through technology. We have to build platforms that we can trust and we have to create transparency. So that people know that they can trust that idea versus, uh, you know, well, what's it in for you versus, you know, how how am I losing out in this? Last, just quick question on the future. Um, what are your thoughts on crypto, Bitcoin, and how quickly do you think that proliferates? Well, I love the technology of crypto, right? So I think the blockchain is fascinating. I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting uh, use cases. I think Bitcoin as a currency, that's probably a little bit more, you know, out there, um, and I say out there in the sense that I think it'll take longer to adopt, you know, whether it's Bitcoin or some other coin is, you know, I think that's up for debate. I like the idea of what it's doing, which is democratizing money. I think there are some real challenges in the space. But with that said, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? You don't look at the challenges and say, this is why it's going to fail. You look at some of the upsides, faster money movement, cheaper money movement for a vast majority of people. That is a powerful idea. So I love it for all of those reasons. I don't have a great sense of the time horizon. I have a lot of great partners and investors who really love it and believe in it. That's great. I hope it's successful for a number of reasons from a consumer perspective. I will tell, and you know, it's like any other currency, right? You know, fiat money is based on the conviction that people have in it of being valuable. So the question is what the consumers feel about the value of crypto. Have you always known you're an entrepreneur? If we go back to you as like a 10-year-old, was this obvious? Is where you've landed something that perfectly make sense or did you sort of accidentally end up an entrepreneur? <laughs> well, it's a funny story. You know, I reflecting now, uh, I guess I always have. And I don't, I, I, I think it comes from my parents to a certain extent, but I remember when I was a little kid, you know, I think one or one of my earlier entrepreneurial memories was, you know, getting a, a magazine catalog. It was like, go sell magazines door to door. Right. And I remember like, oh, that seems so interesting. And I was a super shy kid, introvert. And I remember like, oh, that's fascinating. And I literally did that. And I went door to door selling magazines for a little bit. And that was really my first taste of entrepreneurship. Um, I oftentimes think I get it from my parents because they've always been entrepreneurs at heart. And, you know, they've always been doing something to make ends meet. And, and I think, you know, I'm seeing it firsthand. I don't know if it's genetics or just seeing it firsthand, but it's always rubbed off on me. And I remember, you know, right out of school, for example, I started selling computer parts, uh, you know, online, which was really one of my first ventures. I uh, had an internet cafe at one point in time. Actually, I had three internet cafes at one point in time. And then, That's uh, prior, yeah, and, and yeah, it was it was the best job ever in the sense that I literally went to work every day and played video games with, you know, at that point, a bunch of kids, teenage boys for the most part. And that was my day, and I had a bunch of fun because I was a gamer at, at heart. Um, and then prior to Credit Karma. I actually ran and started a marketing agency helping financial services companies find investors. So all of these things are somewhat interlinked in the sense that I always think entrepreneur is a journey, but there's always connections within that journey. And 
you know, whether it's the early days of entrepreneurship or just cutting my teeth in various places, whether that was, you know, learning what an online company store or store was going to be, understanding the marketing ecosystem with the uh, marketing company I created, and all of those things led into my risk taking, for example, right? You have to learn how to risk take. If we go back to the early days, you've said publicly a few times that you felt like an imposter early as a CEO, as you were kind of learning through it. What do you think helped you not only get better at the job of CEO, but what would you say was the one or two things that you did that was pretty critical for you thriving at the job? You know, having a good sounding board, a good mentor, a good group to bounce ideas off of, right? And it does take time to grow comfortable in your own skin. And as context, right, you would always see the, the stereotypical CEO, right? So you read these Jack Walsh books and you'd say, wow, that's what a CEO looks like. But no one talks about the insecurities of running a company. No one talks about how challenging it is. And, you know, every book you read tends to be, it's all about confidence. There's this innate natural ability. It's never about growing into it. And I think that was what struck me in the early parts. And, um, you know, for me to get over that was one, certainly took a little bit of time and just getting comfortable in your own skin. But two is actually having that personal board of advisors, if you will, or sometimes it's, you know, just your board or whoever your mentor is and someone who has been through that journey, a mentor who can help you through some of the, you know, toughest parts of running a business, who can have a conversation with you around, you know, what leadership is about. Because I think for me, you know, it's a journey. And in the early days, like, oh, it's just business performance, it's the analytics, these are pretty straightforward things. But then other things come in, you know, scale, culture how to lead in communications. These things all are part of the journey. And I don't think any one person is well-equipped to do all of those things really well. You might be adept at many of those things um, because of other aspects of your life, but to learn all of them, I think is really challenging. I think that's the journey that you go in. And that's imposter syndrome because you might be good at one or two of those things, but over time you realize you need to be good at all of them. But you also realize that there is no perfect and that um, you know, you'll always be better at some things than other people getting comfortable with that and leading your skills, but also recognizing your weaknesses is, is part of that journey. What was your toolkit for, you know, I always say being a CEO is the only job that as you are better at it, the job gets harder, right? Because the complexity goes up. It's like a terrible game, right? It's like the better you are, the absolute harder it gets and the more pain you have to physically endure to be able to continue to keep doing well what were your hacks for getting through the hard times? Because you clearly developed some sort of mechanism when, you know, again, even when your business was doing well, like the hard times punch you in the gut. How did you get through those? Well, one, I would always go back to principles, right? I always go back to mission because I always tell the team onboarding, for example, I say, you know, if you understand what the principle is, 50% of all of your decisions that you have to make day in and day out are already answered for you because you go back to the principles, you go back to the mission. There's no judgment there. It's very clear. Is it better for consumers or worse for consumers? Totally. Very simple one, right? Then I think it goes to other areas. So trust is really important. Nobody builds a team by themselves or gets to scale by themselves, in my opinion. And it really requires the trust of the team, um, having the conviction and letting great people do great things. So you know, I, I see, you know, oftentimes a mistake is that, you know, you, you sort of grasp onto every aspect of the business way too closely. And you don't let your leaders grow, grow those, those businesses, develop professionally as well. And I think that's the other aspect is you always have to build a great team around you. You know, to your point, it gets exponentially harder over time. Um, and if you don't have that till you don't have that infrastructure and you don't have the culture and the principles to allow people to flourish, 
I think it's really challenging, right? I think if that happens, you're sort of uh, one of the very lucky, but these are the things about growing a business that oftentimes aren't talked about. Um, so one of my favorite things about you um, was that through this wild journey of, you know, the business being worth nothing to 7 billion, hitting a hundred million people, which is absolutely incredible. Um, at one point, you basically motivated the team uh, by simply saying that you would run a mile for every 1 million in revenue. And I think that year you ran 700 miles, which is just like ridiculous, Ken. Tell us a little bit about how you stay physically well through the experience and any of your hacks there. Sure. Well, you know, if, if you do this for a while, you realize it is a little draining on your personal health and your relationships. And I, I think this is probably four or five years ago. When I realized that, my gosh, you know, between the business dinners and the long work hours, there's very little time for exercise. So uh, I made a commitment to myself as well as the team. And I think this is actually the most important piece was actually, you know, be sort of sharing the goal to both my board, our leadership team, and ultimately the company. Because I think it's just create another level of accountability. It's like anything else, right? When it's your plan and your level of accountability, you share it. I think there's a higher motivating factor. But all to say that the journey was I realized that there was an inverse relationship with the success of the company uh, versus my own personal health. And I said, well, that shouldn't be the case, right? We work hard and, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me that your, your physical uh, health should take a backseat to that. So I said, well, the two should be not inversely related, but directly related. So I've been on that journey ever since. So my goal every year has always been to try to run a mile for every million dollars worth of revenue. And it's been something I've been doing for the last four or five years. And I mean, you know, one of the side effects of COVID, I guess, has been it's a great windfall for that because I've been running a heck of a lot more. I hate running, by the way, but I just feel like it's uh, <laughs> one of those things that, you know, was it, it, it was a great challenge. But also, um, again, I think it's about setting goals and, and falling through on those goals and being accountable for those goals, especially when you share them with the company. It's worked really well for me. By the way, Ken, you're reminding me that one of my favorite moments um, while I was running was another guy who was running, but with a t-shirt that said, I hate running. <laughs> I was like, I was like, man, I feel you so much. I'm so aligned to you right now. I, I need to go buy a whole wardrobe of those t-shirts because that's I how I feel it. every time I'm, uh, I'm on the, on the road here. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, just a few more quick questions because I feel like I could talk to you forever. Um, you were extremely scrappy. And one of my favorite stories about you was you basically got like a, a comp to go do a TV ad, but it was going to cost $100,000. And you were like, that is absurd. I'm not going to do it. So you decided to get some equipment and shoot your own commercial that then, of course, ended in being a wild success. Can you just talk a little bit about your commitment to scrappiness and your DNA there? And and not, like, what are your rules for staying scrappy as, as a CEO? Yeah, well, let me go and tell you the story because I think it's just a great story for most entrepreneurs. And uh, so the time period was 2011. And I remember at that point, we roughly had, you know, maybe a million dollars in the bank. And I knew some people who worked at your traditional media agency. And I remember calling them up and saying, hey, we've got, you know, roughly a million dollars in the bank. We think we have unit economics. So, if, you know, we get a user, we'll roughly break even on them. And we really want to figure out a way to scale the business. And I remember the conversation very well because he came back and said, well, Ken, you know, I think you'll need a $200,000 commercial. That's how much it's going to cost to produce. You'll probably need, you know, half a million dollars worth of media. Uh, and then, and, and maybe then 
you'll be able to get a read as to whether it's effective or not. So I'm looking at the fact that it's going to cost me roughly three quarters of a million dollars and we have a million dollars in the bank. There's no way we can go and spend that type of money. So what we did instead was we took my DSLR. We uh, bought about $20 worth of props. It's called Calendar is the ad that we shot. You can actually probably still see it on YouTube somewhere. But basically, it's literally a calendar, uh, a pencil, uh, and two voice actors. And our voice actors were employees. And we, uh, we shot a commercial, uh, I think probably in about a day. I think we then went to a sound studio, do the voiceovers. I think that was like $150. So we did that and you know, effectively we shot a commercial for like two or $300 all in. Uh, and then we found a way to air it overnight for I think like $50 per ad, right? But what was amazing about that was that $50 spend of media, I think got us like 75 registrations, right? Uh, so it's like, you know, an amazing ROI when you really think about it. And uh, from there, I think we became, you know, one of Google had a product called Google Television back then. I think we became probably one of their biggest advertisers, if not their biggest advertiser in the space, because we ramped that commercial from you know that fifty dollar airing to, my gosh, I want to say twenty thirty million dollars, uh, you know, in a pretty quick time frame. But all to say, you know, I've really learned a lot of things from that. You know, I think one is never listen to conventional wisdom, right? I think you have to challenge all ideas. You have to be very open minded about these. And by the way. I didn't necessarily think television was going to work. I remember I was probably as much of a naysayer, but I knew enough to say, hey, I think you have to turn over all stones in this particular area, right? Um, if it was easy, if it was obvious, everyone would be doing it. You have to go against the standard connection. I, so, so I think that's one thing. But the other thing is to always stay scrappy, right? I think even to this day, I tell those types of stories. I think it's important to stay grounded in what we do just because you have the resources doesn't mean you should spend them, right? You should be, uh, you should spend every dollar like it is your own dollar, which you know, in many ways it can be and is. And you know, I think that's the right way to operate. I also think that our businesses, since they were focused on financial thoughtfulness, I always joked that it was like a pillar of LearnVest that you had to stay scrappy. Um, last thing, uh, before we start to wrap up here, you've also said very publicly that 90% of success is about execution. The idea is only 10%. Clearly, you have become a machine in execution. What are the one or two things that you just like, whether intuitive or learned, that really helped you hone your execution skills? The North Star is really important there, right? So what really matters? What are you trying to do? What are you building? And relentlessly going after that aspect. Like that should never change. I think that is one key aspect. And even today, you know, we talk about our North Stars. We have projects called Polaris, for example, that are really focused on what is the end state of what we are trying to achieve. And by the way, you almost never achieve that end state, but it's always that pursuit of building something bigger, something better, something you know bigger than you can imagine. Uh, so I think it's staying true to that. Uh, and then the details do really matter, right? So just to give you the full spectrum, first is focusing on the big idea, but then it's always a series of executions. So over the years, people will always ask me, what was that one transformative moment? What was that one thing that you did to change the trajectory of credit karma? And when I reflect over the last 13 years or so, I realize there are almost zero you know, inflection points like that. There are always a series of builds, right? It was getting our cost per acquisition lower. It was uh, you know, building a new product that drove engagement by you know, an extra five or 10%. It was always showing up and doing something incrementally more uh, than the day that you had before. And again, this is something I still talk about on our new hire orientations, which is this 
idea that you know it's it's a little bit of a grind at times, and that's a negative term often, right? Because the idea that like well you're grinding out every day, but the reality it's a build every day, and that focus on what are you trying to build. Very few things happen overnight. I think those tend to be the outliers. There's a lot of books on these types of things, but I actually think they set up a false narrative and a set of false expectations for most entrepreneurs. Because the reality is most really successful businesses take years, decades to build, right? And oftentimes we, as entrepreneurs and as humans, will uh, glom onto and align with these outliers that are the exception to the rule. And when you're focused and modeling the exception to the rule, you're gonna be disappointed 99.99% of the time. So be practical, uh, be pragmatic. I think that's probably one of my superpowers is being pragmatic in most of our decision-making, knowing where we're running to go and then being pragmatic about getting there. I think that's the key. And then people will define that as grit. And people will define that as determination. They're all of the above, but I think that is the hallmark of what most great companies are built upon. Ken, I'm so glad I asked you that question. I think everything you said was so beautifully put. And I think really important for everybody else to hear. I'm going to end on a quick fire round. It's super fast questions. You just give us the first thing that comes to your mind. Biggest pinch me moment you ever have had at Credit Karma? Probably a million dollars in revenue. That to me was like, I can't believe we're doing that. What do you think is your favorite interview question when you're trying to figure out if somebody should join Credit Karma? What's the one you like to lean on to get to the core of somebody? What, what's your motivation for joining Credit Karma? We want to know whether you're a mercenary or a missionary. I love it. Um, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Making a difference, right? That is uh, day in, day out. Okay, fast forward two years. How many days a week are we in an office? Three. Don't tell my team that. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, it's three. I'm totally on the same page. Um, last question. Other than Credit Karma, what's one other startup that we should know about? It could be any product that during COVID you adopted and absolutely love. I'm going to go with Strava. I mean, I adopted it before COVID, but <laughs> I'm going to go with the running app because I think setting goals, measuring them, uh, and then holding yourself accountable is so great. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. What an absolute pleasure. Uh, I sincerely want to thank you for everything that you've done for America. And Credit Karma is a beacon for so many fintech founders out there. Uh, for everybody, if you haven't already checked out Credit Karma, head to creditkarma.com. And you can all join me here next week on Inc. The Founders Project with Alex Von Topol. Thank you, Ken.